welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Peacock. Before we get to today's story, I wanted to read an email that I just got a few days ago, which I think brought up a lot of interesting points uh, about this the secret sauce episode with Elizabeth and her MDMA work. Here we go. Hi, Craig. I recently heard your podcast about the MDMA session with Elizabeth and the surprise, almost disbelief that she had received the placebo, especially with all the progress she clearly made after the three medicine sessions and subsequent integration sessions. My placebo experience has been just the opposite. I finished my phase three study in May 2021, and I'm 99.9 sure that I received the placebo. It was and continues to be one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. The grief, disappointment, sadness, and frustration at not receiving the medicine after the rigorous screening process was incredibly overwhelming. And then to do the extremely hard work of trying to work through the traumas without the benefit of MDMA, it was like surgery without anesthesia. It was excruciating. Suicidal ideation was super activated, and now I hear that even after the unblinding, which won't happen till at least October, it could be another year after that before I can do the crossover with actual MDMA because of therapist trainings. I want to share with you a quote that I heard Rick Doblin say on a podcast, quote, so the big risks for us are in the placebo group where people realize they're getting the placebo. We had one person try to kill herself when she realized she had the placebo and she'd given up. She was like, I have terrible PTSD. I gave up my meds in order to be in the study. And now it will take me two years so I can do the crossover and get actual MDMA and I just can't live that way. She tried to kill herself twice. We had another woman who had such terrible suicidal ideation that she checked herself into the hospital to avoid killing herself. And she was also in the placebo group. End of quote. I know that in phase two, unblinding happened right after someone finished their study, and then the crossover to actual MDMA happened shortly thereafter. That is the way it should be done. I understand that there are FDA protocols, the MAPS is following, but it's a dangerous, slippery path for us who got totally opened up in the study with just the placebo. Like so many others, I've been working on complex PTSD for decades, for me, 35 years. I had so much optimism that maybe, just maybe, the elixir of healing was in reach. I understand that the placebo part of the trial is essential. I'm happy to have been able to do my part to help get MDMA out to all the people, like me, looking to find help. I just feel like not enough emphasis or understanding is out there for folks in the placebo group who, unlike Elizabeth, did not move forward, but in fact moved into a darker, more helpless and hopeless place. My journey has moved to ketamine work, and I'm exploring some underground options so I can be proactive instead of waiting for the crossover, which I have no idea if and when that will be available. I guess the bottom line with this email is that we have to be careful with overselling, overpromising, overhyping, and overpublicizing a study where half of the participants might have had or are still having difficult, if at times excruciatingly bumpy and jagged journeys. We're dealing with people, not just data. Thanks for listening. Keep up the great work you're doing. This email brings up so many important issues. Um, a side note, the, the participant that Rick Doblin mentions that had the suicide attempts, that's actually uh, my long-term patient, and I was her co-therapist in the study, and it was one of the most painful things I've ever dealt with in my career. It just ripped my heart open. So I get this. Um, 
I've seen this, you know, not only worked with Elizabeth with her amazing, really kind of miraculous re recovery with placebo, but I've also seen someone almost die twice. You know, this is such a complicated issue with phase two and phase three studies because, you know, as the letter writer mentioned, to get good statistical data, we need to have placebo-controlled trials. But for someone who's suffering with such terrible illness, whether it's multiple sclerosis or cancer or PTSD, and you finally get in one of these studies and you know you could be getting a treatment which could change your life forever, you also know there's a 50% chance that you're going to get placebo. That's just excruciating. And I have to say from my end, uh, as a co-therapist in the trial, it was very painful because you know, we have to walk this line of being a therapist, but also a, a researcher. In, in my heart and soul, I'm a clinician. And when I was in the MAP study, I had to act as an investigator. And you know, there's, there's a reason that we call people in the study participants, not patients. You know, we're really thinking about research and trying to do research, obviously trying to maintain safety. But you know, as the letter writer mentioned, when you have PTSD, which is all about a break in trust, uh, a break in hope, it's, I think it's an almost more brutal placebo group, if you will, than being in a cancer study. And again, I don't have any easy answers to this. I think MAPS is doing what they have to do, what the FDA requires, but it is true that you know some people in the placebo group are going to suffer horribly. And then some people, like Elizabeth, I think you know her combination of not having complex PTSD, you know, as I mentioned in that episode, she did not have attachment trauma. And she almost undoubtedly had uh, genetic markers, genetic pre predisposition for for responding to the placebo effect, which is a really fascinating area of research. If you Google that, the genetic uh, features of the placebo effect, there's a whole bunch of genes now that are being linked to placebo responders and non-responders. So again, I really appreciate that letter. I'm so sorry that you're still suffering so much. I hope you find healing. I think you will. It just might take a little longer. Okay, let's move on to today's story. I am fascinated with the roles that expectation, set, setting, dosage, and route of administration play with psychoactive drugs. For example, an IV morphine drip can make unbearable pain completely manageable, while IV heroin, which is immediately converted to morphine once it crosses the blood-brain barrier, Heroin destroys tens of thousands of lives a year. A benzodiazepine such as lorazepam, when taken orally at sensible doses, can stop a panic attack in its tracks. Yet snorting or injecting benzos, or mixing them with alcohol, can lead to complete blackout and horrific consequences. Taking psilocybin mushrooms with friends out in nature, versus at night alone in the darkened streets of an unfamiliar city, versus with a trained trauma therapist in a healing setting. The resulting risks and benefits and experiences are completely and mind-blowingly different. In today's story, we hear Graham's long and winding road with various drugs and alcohol in the context of childhood trauma and bipolar disorder, with a particular emphasis on his very complicated relationship with ketamine. For years, he used and abused massive quantities of ketamine. Yet now, he's transitioned to using ketamine in a therapeutic context with me, 
and the experience of ketamine, the consequences and the end results are just shockingly different. All because of expectation, set, setting, dosage, and manner of administration. I was born only child, healthy, good to go, happy, only child for two years. And then my mother got pregnant with twins and they were born three months premature. And one of the first memories of my life is in the um, intensive care unit, seeing them and their hearts didn't work. They were just, you know, holding on by a thread and the doctors were telling them to pull the plug on them because they thought they'd be vegetables and they persevered and they were born one pound, six ounces. And it was just, that's my first memory of being in the clean suit and holding them. And even as a two year old, I remember just seeing how small they were. And so they had multiple heart surgeries, their valves didn't work. And in that process, their brains did not get enough oxygen. So, hence, a million problems later in life. But all in all, they survived. But for the first three to, I would say about three years of their life, um, it was life or death struggle. And I just remember, you know, they had heart machines, you know, I just, their hearts would stop in the middle of the night and they'd have to deal with that. And um, it was just too much for my parents to take care of me and them. So... I was kind of removed from the situation and passed around family. I'm so glad I didn't have to go to like an orphanage or some sort of something like that. But, and then until about age five, just because, you know, just passed between extended family, you know, it was my first time meeting them, obviously, and grandma. And, but it's almost yeah. like you became a foster kid. I mean, with ostensibly loving yeah, kind of families, no, but, it, it, but you went out into kind of family foster care. Exactly. So that was extremely confusing for me as a, you know, only child before that. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, my, my mom remembers this one time I asked her, are, are you my mother? Or I asked her, are you still my mother? And she just broke down, you know, just, but it's confusing. All the attention's on you. And then all of a sudden you're just kind of cast into the wind and that's the time you're you know setting up those connections in your brain with your parents about love and being part of a unit and so that definitely I don't know we're still talking about it in therapy but um that definitely had some thing to do with where I'm at now yeah. so for basically what three years mm-hmm. you were not with your parents yes yeah. you know I'd see them every once in a while but it was definitely just passed around you know and luckily we did have my grandparents were still alive at that point and we had good people in our family but i was just kind of passed around mm-hmm. yeah and how was that to rejoin your family as a little boy i don't really remember that mm. if that makes sense i kind of have a, a a blackout memory from about age three to five or six and i remember some you know very intense memories from two to three, which is strange for humans, right? To remember that far back, correct? Mm-hmm. Possibly. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think my brain just kind of blocked that out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder too, you know, one of the reasons that people don't remember their childhoods is because they 
aren't getting the mirroring. Because if you think about how memories develop, that you come home and you report to your parents, oh, I, this happened at school, or I passed the spelling bee, you got an A, and your parents mirror back, oh, that's so great, or that's mm-hmm. wonderful, or that's so terrible that that bully you know, attacked you or, Mm -hmm. but, but there's this whole mirroring process that fixes memories. But, you know, sometimes I, when I hear people talk about not remembering periods of their childhood, I wonder if they were actually received enough kind of mirroring and empathic connection. Yeah. And that would make complete sense. You know, it was a little fractured and, you know, passed between different people and maybe that mirroring process was broken. And I don't know enough about the neuroscience of how memories happen, but yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. then as you rejoin your family are you starting to have you know any behavioral or you know emotional issues as a little guy you know as an elementary school kid and absolutely um chronic adhd lifelong but you know they knew pretty early that something was a little bit off but also like borderline genius iq all that testing which i still don't believe but (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so hyper-intelligent with serious behavioral and attention stuff. Mm-hmm. I could never sit still. I was crazy as a kid, mm-hmm. which led to very early um, stimulant medications for ADD, Ritalin, whatever, amphetamine salts. About I think that started about fifth grade. And it was just, I just remember being f- just like force-fed to me mm-hmm. and having to take you know, going to the nurse at like right after lunch and take more. And that's when the, um, the school of thought of that something is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. That was just ingrained from so young. It's like you, and that honestly, I was kind of trained to be a drug addict, you know, because it's like, oh, something's wrong with you. You need this pill. You need this external substance to be you normal or, you know, mm-hmm. to be complete. So that was, you know, drug addict training. Yeah. I, mean, I could see where if that makes sense. Unconsciously, at least as a little boy, when you were um, sent to live with other family members, how could you not think that there was something, I don't know, not lovable or not mm-hmm. something broken in you. And then, right, you're going to elementary school and they're saying, okay, the way you need to get through your day is you, you have to medicate because otherwise mm-hmm. you, you know, you're not, your behaviors are not acceptable. You're not a functioning little boy. Mm-hmm. Could not focus. Could not focus. Yeah. Um, I was like kind of on the cusp of um, the grades, right? With my birthday being in July. So they kind of started me early. So I was less mentally mature, less physically mature than all of my peers the way through. Like, I mean, all the way through college pretty much. So it, it almost felt like I started at a disadvantage a little bit. Um, and I was always, I mean, we'll get. We'll progress to mm-hmm. high school. But it was always, oh, you're this extremely intelligent person. You are ahead of other people mentally, which I was not. That was a lie. Mm-hmm. And my parent, you know, when your parents live, they try and validate themselves by an intelligent, successful, 
offspring and really they're just trying to you know validate themselves or live vicariously through so that was a big mistake and i wonder too if they needed you at least unconsciously if not consciously they needed you to be not just okay but maybe more than okay to kind of balance out just all the the grief and pain with your sisters and realizing what was not going to happen for them Mm -hmm. but maybe little you they thought okay he he tests very high Mm -hmm he's gifted, he can be... They wanted me to be exceptional, above and beyond. And I'm not that. They still think that. And I'm just, I'm trying to just be a normal, they're not normal, but just functioning human being without expectations. So Mm -hmm. the expectations were set extremely high from day one. Mm -hmm. And didn't work out. Yeah. But as it played out, yeah, it's some weird social. I couldn't. I like didn't really have the ability to make new friends. I kind of stayed in my comfort zone with one friend. His name was Tyler. Super weird dude. <laughs> but um, yeah. So it was more social stuff, and also, you know, I was, I was like average mm-hmm. grades. You know, because it's middle school. It's like it's a cakewalk. Yeah. <laughs> but as I progressed. Yeah, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Then it, the cracks really started to show mm-hmm. in performance and everything. Mm-hmm. But looking back, I was always this kind of like emo, sad boy. I just didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just how everyone felt. And, you know, just stuck in the cycle of going to school every day and just hating it, hating every minute of it. And, being cranked out on amphetamines and Ritalin until like two in the morning mm-hmm. and then having to wake up for school, you know, at six in the morning and was just sleep deprived for probably my entire youth. Where do you think the, the social friend struggles came from? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I still struggle with it. I'm a chronic introvert. I always have been. It's more comfortable for me to be with my own brain than to deal with other people's. And... You know, and that's part of, as I grew older, I started, you know, drinking very heavily and cocaine and ecstasy and all these social drugs um, to overcome my hyper introverted self. Mm -hmm. So that manifested seriously later on in life. But sober me is a very quiet, introverted being. I like my space. I like, (laughs) I like to be comfortable you know, I'm mm-hmm. a cancer. I'm like a crab. You yeah. know, it's interesting. I like my though, shell. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like I see the the quietness and the introversion. But when I first met you, I remember being so struck by how just open and connected and just charming and engaging and you know. And I think you're a good example of you can be a very engaging introvert. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's like a flip a switch that gets like flipped. Yeah, and that's why it's really hard for me to make plans or social plans it's because that social side of me i can't really plan when it comes out you Mm -hmm. know so i i have to make social plans very in the moment even these days because maybe i'm on a manic bipolar upswing and i'm like oh let's hang out i've got here's these trip plans i'm going to california i'm trying to you know Mm -hmm. contacting everyone and then you know a couple when that time comes i'm like oh my god i don't want to go anywhere do anything and canceling plans is like similar to heroin. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> which is, yeah. Yeah. 
What do you think came first? Your kind of plunge into alcohol or your plunge into really severe depression and hopelessness and eventually suicidality? Oh, alcohol, 100%. It was, you know, from age about 16 to 24, it was all fun and games as far as the majority of the alcohol and drug use. It was just partying and partying. I would go to festivals and, you know, sell jewelry. And I was just, life was just a big party. College years, it was just party, party, party. Have fun, fun, fun. Going to Burning Man, six festivals every summer. Partying just like four or five days a week. But then it stopped becoming fun, you know, and the addictions took over. So in those years, there there was still this maybe deep sadness or... Um, grief or you know, even maybe early childhood trauma, but there wasn't really severe hopelessness or suicidality yet. No. That, that hadn't shown up. Mm-mm. And I think it was also because everything was so new and fresh, and it was just me as a young adult experiencing new things. It was all just this just new experience, and like there was no burnout of anything yet because it was all just fun. I had a bunch of friends around me and we were just having fun and every experience was new and special and amazing. And, you know, over time that, that wears out and you realize some of these party friends that you travel around the country and go to festivals, like they're not your real friends, you know, they don't have your back when things get rough. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was around this time in this period when you had a really terrible loss. Mm-hmm. Yes. My like high school love sweetheart, you know, this like the first woman that I completely intermeshed with and fell in love with. Um, and we were together for about three and a half years. And right before this happened, we took like a small break just because I was moving to Oakland. And just she called me and she's like, "Oh, Anya, should I go on this trip to the Grand Canyon?" And it was like a three-week rafting trip. And I was like, yes, you got to do it. You got to go. You have to do this. And then a week and a half into it, in the middle of the night, she was walking off. And um, we think she slipped and hit her head and just fell into the river. And that's when I was 21 years old. And her body was missing for three months. But... um. The way I found out about it was really strange. I woke up in the morning and I got a Facebook message from her mother saying, Caitlin fell into the Grand Canyon. My precious girl is gone. And, um, you know, so I thought it was confirmed dead from that moment on. And I could tell it in just tone, motherly instinct, right? And then... It was, you know, she was, they couldn't find the body for three months, you know, it just went downstream. So it was this weird in limbo thing, but I knew she was dead. Her mom knew she was dead, just like instinctual connections. But a lot of other people had like hope for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Um, so yeah, it was a weird in limbo thing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. How did her death affect you and change the course of the following months and years? Oh, it completely destroyed me as a human being. I ended up going to the... I was living in Oakland at the time. I packed up my whole studio and went up to Occidental, like right by the beach, 
and um, kind of outside of Santa Rosa and um, stayed with my mentor, this guy named Adam Ramsayer, who's an amazing jeweler. And he kind of just took me under his wing for about three months. But I can trace my alcohol alcoholism to that um, first night after she died, sitting in his living room, crying my eyes out, drinking a bottle of wine. And that's when I realized that you can use alcohol to manipulate your emotions and soften sadness and tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so before that, it had been kind of part of the party arsenal. Mm-hmm. And I just, I was just using it differently. It was mm-hmm. like, I just like to drink. Mm-hmm. It was just fun, fun and games. Da, da, da. But that's when it all kind of shifted. age 25 I ended a four-year relationship because I I was with a partner that would kind of keep me in check and then once we broke up because she was kind of emotionally abusive and just kind of a broken woman and um, once we broke up then I I really just started diving into everything and just kind of going crazy and risky sexual behavior and just drinking and just like you know, just letting loose after being in a four or four, almost four year relationship. And so then I just kept sliding. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And more like getting started taking Xanax all the time and tons of just cocaine and just really going for it and dating really toxic women, strippers. And I think I've dated seven people with one dead parent. Mm. So there's a trend there for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I just kept progressing until, and that's when the um, severe anxiety and panic attacks and depression really, that's when it really set in. And there was, there was a day that got so bad, um, panic attacks, just complete dissociation. Went to a psych ward in Oakland and they kind of just did a quick little, like five minute conversation and some old guy in a labs coat prescribed me, I think it was 250 milligrams of sertraline and like some sort of benzo downer just to kind of like a 10 day script just to, uh, you know, stop um, the progression of it getting worse, but it was just a band aid, So it didn't really fix anything. When did you, I mean, was there kind of one bottoming, bottoming out or, darkest time or was it a series of really deep lows or you know, when, when did things get to their worst for you? I would say winter of 2017 um, in Oakland. I would say that was a figurative rock bottom, one of many, mm-hmm. but, um, and that's when I really started abusing drugs and, you know, getting where it's super unhealthy, but in the workshop, there's this warehouse in Oakland, which I still own part of, but it was, you know, there's 10 studios there. And 
It was also just like a drug vending machine. Like the guy downstairs sold ketamine. The other one sold pills, oxys, wheat. Like it was just all around at all times. And so, you know, that much accessibility definitely fuels the fire. How How did you survive that? I could see that was just like a perfect, perfectly awful place for you to be. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the only way I physically survived it was I drew the line at opiates um, because if I picked that taste up, I'd be dead in a week. Um, So physically, that's probably how I survived it. I'm also extremely resilient to substances. I feel like kind of a cockroach, you know? (laughs) It's hard to kill. Yeah. started talking about you know I needed help bad so the year after that I um, moved back to Colorado for about a three-month period to quote-unquote get sober get my stuff together and I had this new psychiatrist in Cherry Creek that was kind of like a I would say like a rich person psychiatrist that um you kind of put, go in there and whatever you want, they'll mm-hmm. give you, you know, and kind I of kind of white coat drug dealer. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and he was very well respected, but he was in his last year before um, retirement. So I could tell he just like, didn't really care that much. And that's, and I kind of manipulated, you know, I knew, I know what to say to get drugs and I know, how, I know all the words to say. You know? um, so basically he prescribed me um, Klonopin and Xanax, like a lot, you know, like 32 milligram bars a month and probably 61 milligram Klonopin. Oh my gosh. And then he wrote me a double script. And of course, I didn't say anything. I was like, ooh. <laughs> um, oh. And insurance, you know, covered that. So it was like $15 for, you know, 60 Xanax and like 60 Klonopin a month, which is. No one should have that. No. Ever. You know, so there was about... That's just frightening. That is, yeah, it was complete. I, I hear no. stories like that a lot, but mm-hmm. they, literally, like, that's drug dealer behavior. Just, what do you want? Yeah, and for sure. Let's give you enough to make sure you are completely physio- physiologically and psychologically dependent. Yeah, for sure. Mm, I didn't really know how um, how addicting and physically dependent you can get on benzodiazepines yeah so having that amount it was just it just took over my entire life and you know they say it's kind of alcohol in a pill and I probably drank and was on benzos for a year and a half you know just almost two years every single day a lot of people (laughs) that would kill (laughs) within the first week yeah that's when life got really messy it's like I can handle alcoholism on its own but as soon as you introduce the benzos into it then it's just it's just a, a blackout spiral. yeah that's what i was gonna say like you know benzos plus alcohol to me it's just blackout like mm-hmm. just like cut out excise big parts of your life that you will not remember yeah but at the same time i was still um 
you know, I was crushing my jewelry business and producing like great work. And, you know, I'll never forget like setting a $25,000 tourmaline in a complete blackout. And like, I could just, I'd, I'd wake up to just like finished pieces and like mm. great stone settings. So that's kind of how I, did you um, rationalize your, your substance use? Cause you know, a lot of people I work with will come and say to me, you know, I can't be that bad of an addict if, you know, I can operate, 100%. if I can do anesthesia, if I can ride a bike or, you know, run my business. And I made more money last year than ever. Like, mm-hmm. like the ability to be really good at you do what you do mm-hmm. actually can be this rationalization. Like how bad could it be? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what kind of made me turn a blind eye to it for years you know as it got progressively worse yeah because i was still very i've just felt like this kind of hunter s thompson type you know Mm -hmm. just like oh just the creative doing all these drugs and still making really good art but yeah if i if i wasn't able to perform it all would have ended right years before that plus your drug use is endorsed by as you said a kind of fancy rich person psychiatrist in cherry creek Mm -hmm. i mean how bad could it be you're those are prescribed to you Mm -hmm. by a highly educated well-respected person. So. Exactly. Perfect. And, you know, and, and I didn't think about that that much. Like, I know what benzos are. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter where they come from. But because I was eating prescription benzos and not st- street benzos with fentanyl and all the gross stuff, like, I would have died for sure if I was eating the those types of street benzos just pressed in someone's basement with dark web alprazolam and fentanyl, you know? Mm-hmm. So in this situation, that's, why I didn't really die, too, because mm-hmm. it's just pure alprazolam. Yeah. How does that resolve? I mean, you're again, you're on enough benzos that if you were to stop, you'd have a grand mal seizure and die. Mm-hmm. You've got a steady source of them. Mm-hmm. You're more or less functioning at work and actually doing some amazing pieces. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's the end result of this course? Well, it ended in a bit of a firestorm. Um, so I lived with my best friend from, you know, sixth grade on pretty much and shared a workshop with him, a great painter. And... There was about three days in a row where I was eating like probably like over 10 two milligram bars a day. And there's one night I ate probably a whole month's prescription of Klonopin in one night Mm -hmm. and just complete blackout, just kind of thrashed the house. And I was just looping. I was telling him the same things every day for like three days in a row. And it got to a point where it was like, all right, this this he's going to die. So he called my family. They pretty much threatened to not talk to me or support me or anything anymore unless I came back right now. And, of course, I missed my first flight back. But, um, you know, I was, I was tired. It was the end of the road. Um, and I knew it was, it was just time. So I moved back to Colorado and also... I cut everything cold turkey. You know, benzo and alcohol withdrawals is one of the only things that can, you know, kill you right off the back, especially mm-hmm. those amounts, you know. It's, it's a, again, cockroach, you yeah. know. 
So I didn't have any seizures, but yeah, it was just cold turkey. Just, you know, the next three days, my parents, like, room above their garage, just dying, you yeah. know, not actually dying, but feeling like it. But looking back, like, you do medical supervision, you take, like, trazodone, right, and taper mm-hmm. off and all that. So, yeah, lucky nothing extremely bad happened there. Yeah. I mean, but, I've seen people have grand mal seizures coming off, you know, 115th, 120th. Mm-hmm. What, what you stopped cold turkey. Yeah. So that could have been really bad. Yeah. I thought I was going to go back to Oakland after that, you know, just like, oh, quick little IOP back. And people around me were like, no way, just don't go back. To... And I lived in a really rough neighborhood in West Oakland. It was just the worst poverty, probably 300 people in tents, you know, living right around me, just heroin needles, human feces everywhere. Like it was gnarly for sure. Mm-hmm. So it was not this vibrant, you know, I love being in the Bay Area, but it was pretty gutter. Went back, grabbed all my stuff, drove back, got my whole workshop. And then I ended up going to Valiant Treatment um, in DTC in um, South Denver. And I didn't, I kind of got tricked into it, honestly. (laughs) My parents like, oh, let's, let's sign up for this little thing. And then I had no idea it was all day every day for about you know tapered off but it was about five months of sitting in groups talking 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 and it was pretty intense and I always had the craziest stories out of everyone there you know Mm -hmm. it's it's a weird feeling when you tell your kind of war stories and the rest of the room of addicts is like what (laughs) it's not fun hanging out with a bunch of broken men all day every day so it was pretty intense but it did work. I was sober for, like, completely sober for a year and nine months about. So Sean, and I still, to this day, he's my weekly therapist. You're a practitioner, but as far as substance abuse counselors, I only trust people that were complete piece of shit drug addicts themselves. Mm-hmm. Only people that have been through the ringer, conquered drug addiction, and out of jail. Mm-hmm. They get it. So I really respect him and he's also how i found out about you um he's very tapped into the he teaches um but just denver therapeutic educational fields and um yeah so that's how i found you Mm -hmm. and um he's been extremely helpful and honestly he knows more about me than anyone else Mm -hmm. pretty much in this world like he's you don't get better unless you're a hundred percent honest with your practitioners yeah whether it be psychiatrists ketamine therapy therapists like talk therapy you only get better if um if you're telling the complete truth had a long and complicated relationship with ketamine. So there were kind of the early years where ketamine was largely recreational, possibly self-medicating. I want to hear more about that. And then the more recent journey with ketamine with me doing intravenous treatments for bipolar depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it started about when I was um, probably about 19 years old. I lived actually couple blocks away from here 
it was more focused on, you know, I was very music centric at that point and seeing jam bands and electronic music and just party, party, party. And so, yeah, it started as in the crowd, do a little powder ketamine and more the musical experience and all that. And over the years, um, you know, I kind of just kept doing more and more and more in these situations. And you know, I remember at Rothbury, you know, 2000, or when I was turning, I think, 20 years old. Oh, no, 18 years old. Somewhat now. Sorry, I take that back. 20 years old. I was doing ketamine to the amount where I would kind of completely get stuck in a K-hole and literally, like, times wake, like, coming back out of it, like, in a ditch <laughs> on the ground, you know, mm-hmm. at a music festival. So just really pushing the limits of it. And I remember one time in front of the Boulder Theater, I um, did way too much and was just, like, on the concrete in front of the venue, puking, you know, just... So it hit a point where it was, like... I was, that's how really bad things happen for sure. And so I hit this point where it was, um, you know, and also communicating with people, you're in this awkward, just like sedated state. And it's not a good look as a human being. So, and especially as an artist, trying to, you don't want to really portray that, you know, Um, as a jeweler, you kind of got to be on point. So as time went on, I made a rule no, no more ketamine in public. And especially mixed with alcohol and all that stuff. But then, as I had some very, I would say, transcendental experiences that were extremely intense in a good way. Crazy visions of, like, I remember this, one of the most intense ones, it was, like, me and this girl starting, like, a whole gram, just to the face, you know, last day of a festival. And had this whole vision of, like, boarding this alien spaceship and these crazy lights. It's, it's hard to describe than this female. There's a lot of female entities in my ketamine visions. And I remember this like kind of almost like lizard serpentine, like alien queen, like handed me this skeleton key that could like unlock any lock. And, you know, so a couple experiences like that where I was like, wow, there's a lot of potential in this realm. It's one of the most interesting substances on this planet i think as far as you know as far as i've done most psychedelics that exist and i've experienced a lot of different altered states of mind academy is one of the most interesting but over time it turned to a more self-medicating state and experience where it'd be you know me in a dark room with a candle no auditory stimulation And it was more of an introspective experience. And I definitely noticed benefits from that, you know, where it was kind of this reset. But as with street ketamine and my addictive personality, it's definitely a gray area of addiction, danger, bad stuff. And definitely the the night before I was, my friend had the kind of intervention. I got sent, moved back home and whatnot. Ketamine was involved that night before, the couple nights before, and, you know, it was to the point where I was just, like, on the floor sedated, and people were just like, what's going on? Like, is he okay? So, some red zone experiences, but, and then I just completely took a break from it for over two years, and I think I did it only once before um, coming to your practice and Mm -hmm. doing it the right way. Yeah. And Did you seek it out, or... 
did someone recommend to you that you should do ketamine for depression? Um, so it was Sean, my mm-hmm. substance abuse therapist that I'm still seeing. So he made the referral to you and, um, and he knew your long history with ketamine. He knows yeah. everything yeah. about me. And he's still, you know, he's a big proponent for, uh, psilocybin, MDMA and ketamine therapy. Cause it's, it's what healed his trauma for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he got shot in the stomach by the Denver police and has had just a bunch of trauma and MDMA therapy is what made him get over everything and like yeah. truly heal. So, you know, when your substance abuse therapist is recommending these types of treatments, yeah. it definitely, it's like, all right. Like, and it's pretty enlightened of him because, you know, this is a, um, this is a big issue in the ketamine treatment world is a people who are actively in addiction or B or in recovery or C mm-hmm. for definitely for people who have abused ketamine or even been you know, addicted to it in the past, like, are they safe people for ketamine treatment? And, and my sense is, and I explored this in the Adderall episode in season one, is that many people with an addiction history or in addiction currently and or who've had problems with ketamine in the past can in fact use ketamine safely in a therapeutic context if it's monitored carefully and and used thoughtfully. So I'm, I'm curious what your experience is. You know, all those years of probably hundreds of ketamine experiences, some of them going very badly and ending up in in ditches and you know, and then <laughs> yeah. coming to see me mm-hmm. where you're in a recliner with, with headphones and eye shades in a very controlled manner getting intravenous ketamine. Yeah, it's um, completely opposite sides of the coin, honestly. It's, if I'm in control and there's an ounce of ketamine around me, I will do it until it's gone. But in this situation, you know, the pre-therapy, the highly controlled aspect, as you speak of, going through after my I remember after my first session with you it's such a intense experience and a it's completely different as well with the you know the time frame and a slow IV drip compared to like a nasal overload where you're in you're out uh, yeah I'll never forget the first time it was I had no desire in my brain to do any more ketamine it was it's like wow I'm tired that was such a profound experience that I'm okay on that realm for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future. And that's so interesting. And I've heard that from other people too, that it's, it's almost like Thanksgiving dinner. It's such a, it's such a big experience that, you know, I think it's a rare person who says, I want to have Thanksgiving dinner again. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Next night. And, exactly. it, and again, mostly that's what I hear from people after, you know, these fully dissociative IV ketamine experiences that it's very deep and intense. And I don't hear people, and in fact, I ask people like, you know, are you going on the dark web? Are you, are you looking for ketamine? Are you craving it? And almost invariably, I, I hear no. Yeah, and it's um, fascinating to me, and that's why it caught me so off guard, honestly, because I'm just very at terms with my addictions and who I am as a person and my patterns over the past. And yeah, it was it was very fascinating to me that. I, I had no desire, no craving. I can get ketamine, like no desire to do that. And yeah, it was just, it was almost confusing to me just knowing my history. And yeah, and it's been consistently that way since I've started doing these procedures with you. Yeah. And I haven't done ketamine outside of, I guess I did maybe one 
bump at a show at Red mm-hmm. Rocks. But outside of, you know, I never seek it out. It's usually, you know, someone just had a little bit. But I haven't seeked it out or had any drive to do that over the past, how many months have I been coming here? It seems like. Since spring, maybe? Yeah. So yeah. A, a good Eight period months. of time, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that's, a, I would say, a pretty solid testament to the non-addictive nature of it Mm -hmm. when done through the proper routes and the benefits of it massively outweigh the risk. I would say like a hundred to one because I'm a functional human being. Um, I'm more stable, I would say, than I've ever been. Yeah, what specifically, when you think of how you are mentally, emotionally, functionally, uh, when it's time to do a ketamine treatment versus you know the days and weeks after? Like, um, so usually, as we space it out, obviously it's a maintenance treatment. As we approach three, four weeks out, um, I would say about more four weeks out, I definitely notice a little dip in sliding back to the old versions of my brain. So it's always kind of right on time for me, if that makes sense. Our scheduling cycle is just exactly what it takes for my brain to be okay. And on top of other medication, constant talk therapy and you know work I do on my own, it's it's the one stabilizer though, you know. So on a scale of 1 to 10 mental state, I'm able to stay within like 4 four, five, six, and about like a sine wave Mm -hmm. instead of this nine huge, crazy manic upswing to like down to two suicidal craziness, you know? So it's just, it's taken the, um, the amplitude of that and it's brought it into a way more manageable Mm -hmm. zone. Can you describe what it feels like in those days after an IV treatment? How are your thoughts different? How... Is, are your emotions different? How is your resilience different? Um, Absolutely. Um, after right at the you know the days after an infusion, it it turns off the alcoholic part of my brain. It's hard to describe, but alcohol just sounds terrible to me. You know, which is wild as a chronic alcoholic. Um, so that's a sev- like a very that's the first thing. It's super impactful. It's so like black and white where it's. And obviously it kind of wears off over time, but, and in addition to that, it's, it's the first time I find like peace in, you know, weeks and it's, I feel okay with things and suicidal ideations get turned off like a light, light switch, just done. And I have faith in the future. Um, I have faith in myself. I get a little sliver of self-love for the first time in a while. And in layman's terms, the analogy I use is, you know, when your internet starts acting up and not working, when you unplug the router, plug it back in, and all of a sudden, everything just works. Mm. So I would say those are the main benefits, you know, after. And then that continues on and kind of varies the next couple of weeks depending on the decisions I'm making in my life and how healthy I am and 
managing addiction or relapse. And, you know, so there's a lot of variables. And, you know, sometimes it is hard to isolate said variables because of being on three other medications in varying amounts. You know, now now everything's consistent. But as we first started doing this, you know, it was like, oh, we switched the medication here. I'm on a different SSRI or different amounts of bipolar medication. And so it was hard to tell what was doing what. But now that I've been on the same doses of those for a while, um, it's much more consistent each each treatment. And how is the IV experience different for you, for you? The sort of in the therapeutic context versus the you know intranasal high dose abusing recreational context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, doing FDA approved human grade ketamine is completely different than just on a molecular level than most of what you find on the street. There's a lot of crazy analogs, um, you know, made in sketchy labs in China, sold over the dark web. And that's what most of street ketamine is. So it's more of a sedative than a psychedelic kind of activator. And using it intranasally, it's a bunch hitting your system all at once. And you going to this really intense state, and then you're kind of out of it. And I think it's too fast um, for the brain to actually get the benefits of it. Getting an uh, IV treatment of human grade, how long are the sessions usually? Yeah, usually we drip it in over maybe 35, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So probably fairly deeply in it for 50 minutes-ish. Yeah, and so that, I, I would describe it as a, a slow parabolic curve, the intensity that goes up, 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 up and then down, but it's the slow, smooth process. And I I think, you know, I'm no neuroscientist, but I think that's where the true benefits come in the kind of the mental reset, to say it simply. Having music is so crucial. Um, It kind of serves as the container to guide the experience. Um, I did one without music and just experiment. And it got a little messy. It was kind of weird. There's nothing to contain the experience. Exactly. I think it's like you know, ego, somatic dissolution dissolving with no container, with mm-hmm. no no music to guide hold it. It's it can be very unsettling and unnerving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt very muddy, just mm-hmm. like kind of dragging through the mud. And yeah, it's it's more um, confusion, honestly, than anything. So. Music is extremely crucial, and curating your music and picking the perfect type before you go into it with intention. So that's extremely important in my experience. And recreational stuff, a long time ago, I was never thinking about all of that. So yeah, just it's just a completely different experience. I mean, it's in the same genre, but um, I've never, doing recreational ketamine, I've never once ever got close to the amount of benefits or long-lasting positive impact it's it's not even comparable which yeah. is so wild because it's similar substances but until coming to your clinic and doing this on a regimented everything's extremely calculated and recorded and the therapy before and after um yeah it's just it's just completely different yeah. in the most beneficial way possible yeah, well, I think it, you know, context and intention matters so much with these substances. You think of, you know, how many people every weekend 
in the world are taking MDMA and how many of them are being cured of their PTSD? Like, not many. <laughs> not many. Not many. Point oh 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 one percent. But there are. But the, but that said, there are people in the MAP study and other people doing underground work who are healing their PTSD with MDMA because they're using it specifically for that purpose in that context. And I think ketamine too is a similar thing that ketamine has been used and abused uh, for decades. And I guess it's the number one drug of abuse in China, which is kind of mind blowing to me. Well, most of it gets made there yeah. in unregulated crazy labs. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was so close to the supply. Mm-hmm. We might shift to uh, first just talking about how far you've come and why. Because you know, uh, you and I met last spring, and um, I was just so impressed with you from the beginning. Just how insightful and motivated and committed, and yeah, just smart and awesome you were, and how close you've been to death. And you know, as before we were recording, as I was coming here today, I was thinking, yeah, what were the things for Graham that really have changed things. And again, sitting here, listening to your story again, my sense is, and I, I'd like you to weigh in on this, my sense is what's really shifted is one, you've given up benzos. Mm-hmm. Two, Huge. your therapist, you know, you, as you talked about, you've been just brutally openly honest with him. And, you know, in, in my therapy work uh, with, uh, with my patients, I just think it's just, that is job one. Like if you can't have trust and honesty and, you know, ain't nothing good going to happen. I think um, getting an accurate bipolar diagnosis was crucial. And then getting on Lamotrigine, Lamictal was a total game changer. And I think the ketamine treatments have been crucial. And, you know, and I'm glad you talked about this today, that leaving your old playground of Oakland, you know, in, in AA, they, they kind of disregard the geographic here. But sometimes you need a different playground. Sometimes you actually need to move to a different state or coming you know, for you it was coming back home. But my sense is coming back to Colorado has actually been a key part of the healing experience. Absolutely. And like you were saying, it's so much of addiction is tied to people, places and things. And it's kind of step one is change your environment, change the people you're around. Maybe don't hang out with a bunch of drug dealers and, <laughs> you know, drug abusers. And yeah, so those two things are crucial. And even just little mental connections, like I associate the sound of my heater in my old studio with severe alcoholism and ketamine abuse. And like, Mm -hmm. I got rid of all my clothes when I moved back and just any, all my blankets, everything, my brain associated with those states. And yeah, you get to a point where you're just, you're sick and tired. And honestly, one of the biggest things for me was feeling my best friends move away from like distance themselves from me. And as soon as I felt that happening, then it was, that was one of the most impactful things where it was like, oh my gosh, am I really going to let my addictions ruin my relationships with the people I love most? And my family too, I was kind of just off on my own, doing my own thing for about eight years. And 
everything was my fault. Everything mm -hmm. with the family unit was my fault. And coming home, and I was just this black sheep that was kind of a punching bag for my family unit. And then once I got back, got sober for that first year and nine months, and kind of retapped in with them, all their same dysfunction <laughs> issues were all still there. And I was like, haha, ta da. Like, this is. Clearly, there's way different issues, and I'm not just the problem, mm. you know? So that's a really important additional one that sounds like uh, you've also made such progress because you have not just sort of reconnected with your family, but your your position in the family, the story about you and the family has changed. Absolutely. I'm the kind of the safe space now, and now me and my mom and me and my dad, we're buddy-buddy, and... It's it's wild going from the black sheep to the, oh, you're the reliable one. You're the emotional safe space. Oh, we're, you're going to handle the trust, you know, once we die and kind of the point man moving forward. So that's a crazy transition, mm -hmm. I will say. And that's, you that's got to feel good. I mean, it feels about so good. To, you know, there's just so much guilt and shame and addiction. And, you know, yours goes way back to even as a little kid feeling like, why am I not achieving like my parents want me to and like the tests say I should. And, yeah. and now in 2021, to realize that your parents actually respect you, they see you, they're proud of you. You're not the black sheep or, or the dark secret of the family, but you're the go-to. Yeah. And it's wild. And, you know, dropping out of CSU at... 19 years old for a year and I think I got like a 1.1 GPA that first year and but I was ditching class to make jewelry and I was partying and all this but when I dropped out and moved to San Francisco to go to jewelry school you know that was my parents were definitely like oh god like I hope this works you know but for the first time I was pursuing what I wanted instead of what status quo social norms whatever wanted me to do and yeah. you know my parents wanted me this engineer and this like mit genius and it was like i'm so not that i'm yeah. this metal worker creative artist you know thank goodness you found art i mean just because you know even back in the dark oakland days when you were slowly dying like you were mm -hmm. making art you're making art here like mm -hmm. that seems like that's been this island of confidence and competence and excellence that has always carried through well, it's also just out of necessity because <laughs> never really had a real job. It's like I put all my eggs in this basket and it's also what, you know, I've derived all my self-worth out of over the years. And it all started out of severe insecurity, too, because I was terrible at school, terrible at sports, just all just nothing. I was I had no identity or anything I was good at, really. So as soon as I got a taste of it. I just went full speed, but the driving force was honestly to just like be something and have value and have people respect me or get compliments or, you know, so it, it all came from a very insecure place, but mm -hmm. people, you know, 11 years later, everyone that's observed that I have not given up and I still do it every single day and surviving through art is, it's very difficult. There's lots of fluctuations and... It's hard. The mm. boss runs a real loose <laughs> ship, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm in control. And that's and that's another reason too all my addictions were able to sustain for so long mm. because it's like, all right, 
I'm the boss. Like, there's no, I had no accountability structure besides, like, getting projects done. Where do you get accountability now? Because I think of that as such a crucial part of, you know, the, the behavior change out of you know the addictive, isolative, you know, deceitful life to an open, healthy, connected life. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm still very much working on it. You know, this week definitely slipped into some alcoholic cycles, and I, I don't have a ton of accountability besides still the same like projects, deadlines, talking to clients. Being around my family definitely helps um, in seeing them, you know, every once in a while. Not often, but having my sweet little Frenchie, Lola, having a creature that 100% relies on me for everything, you know, that, that'll that stop a bender. You know, it's like I can mess around for a day, but at the end of it, I had to take care of my little doggy child. Mm-hmm. So that is a big part of accountability currently friend groups and just more than anything it's just me it's no one else can heal an addict but themselves it's that's maybe your greatest challenge going forward oh absolutely and i can be it's it's wild what your brain can trick you into doing it's you know sometimes i think there's just like these little gremlins that live in my brain and they trick me that you know that feeling you get of needing to drink water, eating food, all these biological incentives. It's like as powerful as that with alcohol. And it's, it's wild. It's like, sometimes I just, my brain just checks out and then I go to the liquor store and I'm all of a sudden I'm drinking and it's almost this like unconscious thing. It's like in a dissociation. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would, that's the perfect word for it. Almost a dissociation where you just kind of check out and you're, it's almost like the lizard brain, takes over and it just um it's pretty wild it's it's uh, it's hard to describe to someone who's not a severe addict yeah. you know and that's why with talk therapists i only trust people that have been through that cycle and clinical practitioners that's completely different yeah. I would rather them be <laughs> they I got th- good grades in college <laughs> and finished everything and have a you know yeah um, in my mind i think what's happening with that sort of dissociated numb sort of automatic robotic you know drive to the heroin dealer or walk through the aisles of liquor store i think it's as soon as you consciously or even unconsciously make the decision let's say to drink you your body's getting ready your body and your mind and you're starting to flood with it actually you're starting to flood with the endorphins are going to come from that Mm -hmm. first slug of alcohol and so you you are in this sort of high numbed dissociated state i think before you're even using i would agree yeah it's like your body's like oh yeah here it comes yep and especially obviously there's all these statistics about the earlier you start drinking the you know the more severe alcoholism will be over the course of your life and i think it's just that early hardwiring of just those dopamine just circuits and it just gets more ingrained it's almost like a path walking through the forest. If you, one person walks through it, 
there won't be a path. But if a thousand people, you know, say a thousand times drinking, then there's, there's no vegetation there. It's a hard path that you can see. And so I think it just gets hammered into your brain and reinforced and reinforced. And that's why I'm so glad I'm trying to do work now instead of, you know, I have a lot of people in my family that are trying to deal with this when they're like 62 years old, you know, and they're on their third divorce and they've lost their kids and countless DUIs and almost jail time. And I can't even imagine reprogramming at that pace, that point in life. If I had another 30 years of severe alcoholism onto my life or my current age, that's, I don't know how you reprogram, but Mm. my uncle's doing it. He's been sober since last November. So it is possible. It just takes, I think, a lot more tragedy to really yeah. make you change your path. So I wonder if I hadn't thought of it this way, but I wonder if us sitting here today and you telling your story, if this is actually a kind of accountability, this, uh, I asked you before, do you want to use your real name? You said, yes. Mm-hmm. And you said, look, I, I want to be honest. And I want to put my story out there and I want people to know. And, and I just want to be, be real. And I just, as I'm listening to you, I just, I think, there's something really deeply accountable and honest and brave to just sit here and let this all spill out. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And back to accountability um, and transitions that have happened over the last, say, four years. And I stopped lying. I, I realized, one, that my memory isn't good enough to maintain a web of lies, but it got me nowhere. It's just pure honesty, even if it's some terrible stuff happens and relapses and everything. It's just so much easier to just be completely honest about the everything. People respect it so much. And, you know, if you're being a sneaky addict and lying and hiding, like, that's when you know you have a severe, severe problem. And you're not going to get better unless you're 100% honest to yourself as best you can be. And there's mental distortions and addict brain does weird stuff. But your peers, you have to be completely honest, your therapists, your, and especially your medical practitioners, you know, if you're getting depression, bipolar medication, or ketamine treatment, like, you have to be a complete open book. And I was from day one, because if you, if you're putting bad data into the equation, your results are not going to be as good, I don't think. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. So, you know, I've, I've gotten rid of all the guilt. It's all been, you know, the ego, the guilt, the shame. Like, it's been beaten out of me (laughs) by life. So it's just, it's, I come as I am, you know, and it's an open book. But I think it is just accountability, too. Self-accountability. Yeah. Speaking of the double-edged nature of psychoactive drugs, I think it's not an accident that the drug that Graham still struggles with is alcohol, surely the most destructive drug in human history. On Thanksgiving Day this year, I lost yet another patient to alcoholism, and he was just 35 years old, a dear and sweet and kind man. I would estimate that at least half of all the chaos and morbidity and suffering in my 20 years of psychiatric practice has been a direct result of alcohol. Surely, if we can live with legalized alcohol, which destroys millions upon millions of lives a year, surely we can find a way to live 
medicalized and legalized psychedelics. 